Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 88 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I am very pleased it is officially jumper season. Two fair ladies. Yes, if you've been playing Standard Issue bingo, (laughs) congratulations. There's more on bingo later. I'm so confused. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I can only apologise for what I sound like. I've been rotten poorly. She has been rotten poorly and it's lovely to be in a closed (laughs) (laughs) closed room with her. Don't make me laugh, please. I make off and never stop. I'm Jen Alford and I've started impulse buying corned beef. Finally. Hang on, no, what I meant was why? I don't know. I just just can't get enough of it. Just want it in my life. What do you put it in? I thought this was like a Brexit thing. No. Just see it and... Gonna have that corned beef. It's part of the appeal, the tiny key that you get, and you're like, will I get into the corned beef or will I not? No, sliced corned beef because I've tried that fucker. Right. And every time I've tried, the key has just fallen that, apart. It is nicer corned beef in that tin, though. It's very, very is hard such a thing to as open. Nicer yeah, oh, yeah. Corned, corned beef hash is a mm. stuff of dreams. Mm. Mm. It's really not. Corned beef pie. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Love a bit of corned beef. Oh, but what about all that? Oh, no. the weak stomach just made a noise (laughs) let's move on let's move on yeah later on we chat to sarah Raphael and nomi shimada about their mixed feelings around social media how it's affecting all of our lives and what and why is a snapchat streak following the publication of her new book big sister little sister red sister i talked to best-selling author jung chan and in jenny off the blocks i talked to sports journalist carrie dunn about her new book pride of the lionesses among other things and brace yourselves for disaster is imminent and not just out there in here too. As we say goodbye dystopia, hello full-blown disaster pick. And what else to start with but the towering inferno. But first, Me Too rumbles on, the pain gap, and what the hell's going on in the back of that Vauxhall insignia? It's time for the Bush <laughs> Telegraph. <laughs> Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Struggling to find the funny in this shit show, unlike Pretty Patel. Oh my God, she's got resting smirk face. Hasn't she? She oh does, God. yeah. Also, she's evil. She is also evil, it's true, yeah. Speaking of evil, uh, you may have heard that we've got some of those adverts at the top of this podcast that tells you to get ready for a no-deal Brexit. And that is because we have decided to enjoy the perverse logic of the government funding a podcast whose greatest wish is to see it fail. Yeah, totally. So, you know, get ready for Brexit. How? We won't tell you. (laughs) No no information. (laughs) I went to see my cousin the other day and she's had a baby. And so she's been in a bit of a, you know, days of, you know, no sleep and feeding and no sleep and feeding and all of that. And she said to me, oh, um, am I supposed to be doing something for Brexit? And I was like, yeah. And she said, what? I said, nobody knows. Nobody knows. Is it her firstborn? Because she might have to do something with that. (laughs) (laughs) We've been telling people for ages what to do to get ready for Brexit. And we just told them just now, corned beef, (laughs) tins of corned beef, and Hannah's stockpiling two bags. Indeed. Uh, On which note, a big shout out to everyone planning to go on the People's Vote March this Saturday, the 19th of October. Placards, like-minded humans, dogs, it's going to be great. They all always are i said dogs by the way oh yes dogs you may be worried about what's happening in the case of a no deal brexit but you may not have heard of this issue which is currently causing concerns around the country that a no deal brexit may lead to a rise in dogging (laughs) you heard me oh god thanks to the leak slash Release. God, that's three filthy words in one sentence. I can't believe you just said dogging leak and release. <laughs> so and close. Slash. 
of Operation Yellowhammer documents, we were already aware of the monumental traffic jams expected around major UK ports. No, but really, 100-mile backlogs are expected, which could take two to three days to clear. And by to clear, meaning from get point A to point B, could take you two to three days. It's a lot of I spy, isn't it? It certainly is. <laughs> so how does this lead to an increase in dogging? question. <laughs> well, that's a leap in imagination. That isn't ever entirely clear, <laughs> I'm going to be honest. But the Sunday Times reported an unnamed minister, Natch, saying, quote, One of the things we talk about in these no-deal meetings concerns hauliers and their activities. The main thing is whether they will turn up at the channel ports with the right paperwork. But there are also dogging hotspots all over the place. And what is a hotspot not? (laughs) (laughs) It's a segue that a week later I'm still trying to get my head round. It's just the best the Liberal Democrats have got because I think they're going to have to try harder. Keen as I am on the idea that a complete breakdown of society in the aftermath of a no deal might lead to fucking with total abandon. (laughs) I mean... Jen and I are single. Even I failed to see how living on corned beef hash and worrying about Nana's insulin is going to drive us all to Kent car parks to show off our skills to board long-distance lorry drivers. <laughs> and equally tedious, though, two to three days in the cab of your vehicle might be, I struggle to think that any self-respecting European would trek across miles of fields to watch the head of a Medway Bowls club going at it with Debbie from Argos Human Resources. (laughs) But what do I know? I mean, it's clear this story is designed to distract from the very real consequences of leaving the EU in a childish shit fit. But it's worth bearing in mind, especially if your no-deal resolution is to show your chuff to more middle-aged blokes called hands. (laughs) Or... If the queues get a bit long in your local Tesco superstore, clean up team to aisle seven, etc. Well, that's that's horrific. Slash a new theme park yeah. in Kent. So dogging, right? I remember being with my mate and we were chatting about dogging, and she said, "Why don't they call it catting? Why is it why is it always dogging?" And I was like, "What?" And she said, "Well, that's how cats have sex as well." I'm like, "It's not the position, darling. It's because people are taking their dogs for a walk and." Oh, accidentally stumble across people fucking in a car. I thought it was because dogs and cats invariably, actually, if you have them, stare at you weirdly while you have sex. No, it's because it was the excuse used. I'm just going to walk the dog. I thought it was just nothing. I, I, did, I didn't know Well, it you're was. both very welcome. Thank you. <laughs> I'll pay that fact forward later, no <laughs> doubt. Not later today, that sounded weird. So it's two years since the hashtag MeToo movement exploded, imploded and continued to, I don't know, plode. Because, yep, while it might not be making headlines at the moment, the movement very much rumbles on. In October 2017, stories in The New York Times and The New Yorker prompted thousands of women to come forward with their accounts of sexual harassment and assault against a wide variety of perpetrators. And they all came together under the hashtag MeToo, a term originated by civil rights activist Tarana Burke. Zelda Perkins and Rosanna Arquette, whose accounts of sexual misconduct by professional spaffer at Harvey Weinstein kick-started the Me Too movement, have warned that the allegations against the film mogul are, quote, only the tip of the iceberg. More than 80 women have alleged sexual misconduct by the producer over a period of four decades, and Weinstein faces criminal trial in January 2020 for charges including rape and predatory sexual assault, all of which he's pleaded not guilty to. 
I've just finished reading The Incredible She Said by Jodie Cantor and Megan Toohey, who are the two journalists who broke the Weinstein story in the New York Times back in 2017. It is compelling stuff, which details many reasons to believe that there is still an avalanche of shit to land on men in positions of power who have abused that power. And yet, and yet, President Grabham by the Pussy remains in the White House. Brett Kavanaugh was nominated to the US Supreme Court and our own filthy piece of toe rag appears to be made of Teflon. Did you see that photograph? Of the boob? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of Jennifer R. Curie wearing a Back Boris t-shirt. But you can't actually see that it says Back Boris because she's standing at such a weirdly contorted angle that... You know when I, I had that t-shirt with John Lewis's face on it and, and it made him look like deformed yes. because of my massive t-shirt? looked like the elephant man. Yeah, it's, it's kind of that. And, yeah... It's horrific. And he's having a good old gawp, isn't he? Yeah, she's got a hand on his back. I'll Google it. Much as I would have liked to have talked at length about Wagatha Christie in this week's News Roundup, turns out there's been some more important, albeit depressing news for women this week. Although I can't deny it is depressing that anyone would want to read about Colleen Rooney's flooded basement. Not a euphemism, not even a real thing as it transpires. I know we're not officially talking about it, but I'd just like to tip my hat to Waggett which I enjoyed thoroughly, and Herculean Quirooni. <laughs> Look, there was some lovely stuff happening. Absolutely oh, lovely there absolutely stuff. Was. It is the greatest use of a dot, dot, dot I have seen for a very, very, it's... very long time. I'm even going to forgive the fact she used way too many dots for an ellipsis, yeah, which is called a dot, dot, yeah. dot, because there's three dots, guys. Yeah. It was beautifully done. The storytelling. dot, dot, dot. Beautifully done. <laughs> it was. Anyway... In news that I don't think is going to surprise anyone around this table. Uh, around this dot, dot, dot <laughs> table. Or indeed any of our dot, dot, dot. <laughs> I probably need to stop that now because we're going to get serious, guys. Um, a survey published last week revealed that one in four patients with secondary breast cancer had to visit their GP three or more times before they were diagnosed. That means an advanced form of the illness which has spread through the blood to create secondary tumours in other parts of the body, at which stage it is incurable. Charity Breast Cancer Now, that is a weird name for a charity, isn't it? What do we want? <laughs> breast cancer, when do we want it? No. <laughs> Have they just accidentally put a W on and it should be breast cancer? No. No, it's Breast Cancer Now, which okay. makes it sound like a women's weekly magazine or something anyway. Breast Cancer Now said there needs to be more awareness of the very fact that the disease can spread to other parts of the body and those going undiagnosed were missing out on treatments which could improve their quality of life. There's a full list of symptoms of secondary breast cancer on the Cancer Research UK website but Breast Cancer Now found that just 13% of the 2,100 secondary breast cancer patients they surveyed hadn't even been told by GPs what symptoms to look out for. Four in ten said their symptoms were not taken seriously. A spokesperson for the Royal College of GPs said symptoms could be hard to interpret because they're vague in the initial stages, which I think is always what you want a doctor or trained medical professional to tell you. But anyway, I don't want to slag off the NHS because they do a great job and have increasingly limited resources, but this isn't just restricted to breast cancer. We've done a lot of interviews recently about the menopause and I've spoken to a couple of people about endometriosis in the last couple of weeks, all of which you can hear on uh, various podcasts we've, we've put out, by the mm -hmm. way. 
And it always seems to come back to the same thing. The problem starts right at the top in that the people awarding funding for research or the people doing it are men and so have less interest in women's health issues. And that trickles right down to society and the way women's pain isn't taken seriously. And I kind of feel like there must be enough information about this out there now for it to be so obvious that it's a problem. You'd think. Oh, yeah, I mean, looking at me, I've got friends who died because they were told that there was nothing wrong with them and it turned out there actually were yeah and going back to those interviews we've done with women about the menopause just women living with symptoms for one woman had lived with it for 27 years because no one had, had told her that it could be this or sent her for the right blood test and i get what you're saying when gps are saying that symptoms are vague in the initial stages and of course that is a worry but why isn't it higher up on their sort mm. of it could be this card. Well, it's like Lucy, when I talked to Lucy about endometriosis the other week, it took her 10 years to be diagnosed. And I think like the average is about nine years to be diagnosed for endometriosis, which is just, like a ridiculously long amount of time during which things can go like quite seriously badly wrong for you. She was saying, you know, why isn't there, OK, you've got this and this. Maybe we should think about, do you know what I mean? Like it, it, it really shouldn't be that hard, should it? I don't know. No, no it shouldn't. I think what we have to do is keep making a noise about it. So there's a little bit of good news. The BBC have just done a massive survey of women with endometriosis and a big campaign about it, with a lot of women saying that they wanted to take their own lives because they were in so much pain and they felt there was such a lack of support. And it means that MPs are going to be launching an inquiry, which is small, but at least something. Yeah. Well, for that one health yes, issue. that one health issue. Yeah. But hopefully it'll encourage women to make more noise. Because, mm. you know, the other thing that girls are taught is to shut up and get on with it. That's the other thing Elaine said when I interviewed her about the film Endo. No, it wasn't Elaine, sorry. It was Alice, the director, about the, the gendered idea of like yeah young girls are taught that like don't make a fuss don't make a fuss Mm -hmm. just like just accept it kind of thing and that that sort of stretches across like so many different things you know what it starts really young because we were just Mm. having a conversation before this started about how if you ever had a bellyache when you were little your (laughs) mum used to say why don't you try and have a poke i'm so glad we've got that into this podcast (laughs) but also when it got to a certain age when you got to a certain age and you had a bellyache your mum used to say oh maybe it's Maybe it's like because you're going to start your period. So. Your special lady poo. Yeah. <laughs> no, but she Sorry, did. I've never called it that. She did used to say stuff like that. Oh, my mum used to yeah. say stuff like that. Yeah. So it was just like, oh, this is a thing you're going to have to put up with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it could have been like actually genuinely, I've got a bad belly. But no, it was always. My appendix is ruptured. Yeah. <laughs> oh, do you need a poo? On that bombshell, more news. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where I start with some good news. Hey, For, for men. Ooh. And then we find out whether it's the same for women. Place your bets now. The Food and Drug Administration over in the US has approved a new HIV prevention drug, only the second of its kind. Descovy, like its predecessor Truvada, is taken daily, an HIV prevention strategy called pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP. However, Descovy, made by a company called, and I shit you not, Gilead Sciences, has only been trialled on dot, dot, dot. Shut up, no. (laughs) Rebecca Vardy's account, no. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, no, seriously, no, it's only been trialled on male bodies. This means the FDA's approval explicitly excludes, and I quote, 
individuals who have receptive vaginal sex. Now, who could that be? With no plan to make the drug available to them. And by them, I mean women and trans men. Now, you may be thinking that maybe HIV affects more men and trans women than women and trans men. And that's why Duscovy has, so far, been designed for male bodies. Nope. Let's go over to the excellent Caroline Criado Perez's must-read book on the gender data gap, Invisible Women. In parts of Africa and the Caribbean, women aged 5 to 24 are up to six times more likely to be HIV positive than young men of the same age. We also know that women experience different clinical symptoms and complications due to HIV, and yet a 2016 review of the inclusion of women in US HIV research found that women made up only 19.2% of participants in antiretroviral studies, 38.1% in vaccination studies, and 11.1% in studies to find a cure. Now, company officials have said that the FDA will, in fact, require Gilead to study Descovy in women, and Gilead is considering a trial in Africa, which, you know, slow hand clap, because the additional information there is that 84% of the original trial participants were white. Hmm. Oh, to, this is one of the things that made me really angry recently. Sam Geimer, is that what he's called, went from the Conservatives to the Liberal Democrats? caused quite a kick-off by a number of Liberal Democrat activists who left because he had voted for or supported a proposition that said that there should be compulsory HIV tests for asylum seekers wanting to come to this country. Oh, yeah, I Something that. that they claimed was homophobic. Yeah. Which arguably is true. Nobody pointed out that in places like Africa, it's actually sexist to do that because women are more likely to be infected with HIV. When you consider that in uh, certain places in, in Africa, rape is used as a, a weapon. Yeah. Uh, and in those instances, one man could infect a whole village of women. Also, it's dangerous for women because if women have HIV, there's an increased chance of passing it on to uh, yeah. a child. Yeah. A child that they are carrying. And the other thing that the FDA's approval of this particular drug certainly looks like it's showing is exactly what Jen was talking about in that it's just women aren't being accounted for and that's why there's a massive pain gap. One of the early names for AIDS was 4H because it affected four groups, all of which start with an H when it first turned up. Mm -hmm. Homosexuals, heroin addicts, haemophiliacs and Haitians, oddly. Yeah. And those groups predominantly, like, dominated. And, okay, yes, Haitians includes women, haemophiliacs includes women, heroin addicts includes women, but... The group that was initially most predominantly affected was homosexual men, and therefore, I think that image has stuck yeah, in people's totally. brains that that's mm. who gets AIDS, and, and and obviously, it's a lot wider than that. Actually, on that note, if anyone is interested in the uh, early days of the out- outbreak of AIDS, there's a really, really great book called "And the Band Played On" by Randy Schultz, which explains it perfectly. It's in my house. It is. It is. Is it because it's too heavy to bring? It's really heavy. You can't commute with it. (laughs) And Hannah lent it to me just as I was moving house. (laughs) I was like, thanks. But yeah, it's. uh, I remember you spent a week getting well riled up. Yeah, made me very, very angry. That book for all sorts of reasons. Fucking Ronald Reagan. Dot dot dot. (laughs) Couldn't. What are you doing on November the eighteenth? I'm thinking of, and I want you to brace yourself for this, Hannah, but I am thinking of talking to some men. Ah. Wow. Any yeah. men in particular? Handpicked three. Craig Parkinson, that's right. He of unbuttoning and buttoning his jacket on Line of Duty and also the amazing Two Shot podcast. Nish Kumar, he of the Mash Report and general funniness. And Mr. Joe Lysett, 
He of hilarity ensues whenever he is in a room. And fantastic. What I can only describe as blouses. He does have incredible blouses. What do you think the chances of getting all those people in the same room at the same time are, Mickey? I'm glad you've asked, Jen, because I've been working very hard to make this happen alongside my (laughs) lovely colleagues, Jen and Hannah, who you may know well. And uh, it is going to happen at King's Place on November the 18th, which is International Men's Day Eve. It's going to be mint. Get your ticket. Yeah, if you want to get to www.standardissuepodcast.com, you will find details of that and our many other live shows. I love that you always say the www. I know. I, I interviewed Sam Avery, another man, once, and he said it, We're and everywhere. it just made me laugh. So I like to put it in. I am joined by author of the international bestseller, Wild Swans, and now the new book, Big Sister, Little Sister, Red Sister, Young Chang. Hello. Hello. This is a book about who you describe as the most famous sisters in China, Qingling, Meiling and Ailing. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about who they were? The three sisters were from Shanghai. They were born at the end of 19th century and their lives spanned the entire 20th century. One of them, little sister Mei Ling, died in 2003, aged 105. They were from a very wealthy Shanghai family and a very religious family, Christians. What made them famous in the Chinese-speaking world was primarily that they made extraordinary marriages. Uh, one of them married somebody called Sun Yat-sen, who was called the father of Republican China. And one of another married Chiang Kai-shek, who was the ruler of China for 22 years and um, was before Mao threw him out of mainland China and drove him to Taiwan. And the third sister, Eileen, made herself one of the richest women in China. The sisters were extraordinary. Madam Chiang Kai-shek, as China's first lady for 22 years, um, was one of the most famous women in the world in her time, particularly during the Second World War, when Chiang Kai-shek led the Chinese resistance against Japan, and she was um, a, a good first lady. And the Madam Sun Yat-sen became a Leninist. She was the red China in the book, and she became Mao, Mao Zedong's vice chairman and later became the honorary president of communist China. They were sort of quite extraordinary. So speaking about the, the red sister, as it were, Qingling, she, as you just said, she rose to be Mao's vice chair, which might surprise some listeners because for a woman to have such a high place in the world, was that quite rare? It was rare, but, you know, she made herself high profile in the 1920s. Um, there was a picture in my book, which was um, the, um, the leaders of the Nationalist Party the, in, in the 1920s as a Leninist party. And she sat right in the middle of the front row as one of the leaders of the then Leninist Nationalist Party. And Mao actually stood behind her. 
and Mao was more junior, far more junior than she was. And later, when the communists took power, she became Mao's vice chairman. But by this time, she had become someone who was largely symbolic. She did propaganda for Mao's China. She presented a beautiful face to the world as Mao's vice chairman, but she made no policy. When she married Sun Yat-sen in 1915, most people would not tolerate her to be in public with Sun because leaders' wives were always tucked away mm. in the background, and she wanted to be at the front to be, you know, with Sun Yat-sen as his political partner, but she couldn't. And then in 1922. She was madly in love with her husband, Sun Yat-sen, and was ready to die for him. So she offered to cover his escape in one um, enemy assault so he could escape. And then he promised to send somebody to escort her to flee once he arrived in safety. But what she didn't know was when her husband arrived in safety, he didn't let her know. He didn't want her to escape. He wanted her to stay and draw enemy fire and to stir up a bigger war so he could do a counterattack for his political goals. She nearly died. She had this flight of two nights and two days, and um, she nearly died. She suffered a miscarriage, and she was told she could never have children again. And um, she was absolutely devastated um, for losing her child, for never being able to have children, and for the betrayal of her husband. Her husband she had loved so much, and she was ready to die for him. Then she figured out what she wanted from her husband. She didn't want a divorce. She wanted to have the title of Madame Sun, Sun Yasien, but she wanted her husband to allow her to have a high political profile, to be a politician in her own right. And that's how she earned this status. Her love for her husband died, but instead she was going to make deals. It's a sort of a product of the fact that her heart had gone cold. Mm. So she became more calculating in her relationship with her husband. The book is a massive, massive undertaking in terms of research. And especially given that the people you're dealing with are sort of world leaders, uh, there's conflict, there's propaganda, how did you go about researching the book and making sure you had sort of accurate representations of the women? Well, you see, actually this book is the easiest of all my three biographies because after I wrote Wild Swans, I wrote a biography of Mao, Mao Zedong, and I wrote a biography of Empress Dowager Cixi, who was the first modernizer of China, and she brought China into the modern age. And for both of them, the research was much more difficult. And for Mao, so much information has been suppressed. But for the three sisters, the research was a lot, I must say, a lot of work. But it was relatively easy because they were all educated in America. 
and Sun Yat-sen himself was educated in Hawaii as well, and Chiang Kai-shek had an intimate connection with America. So there were a lot of American archives. Chiang Kai-shek's diaries at Hoover Institute in Stanford, and Chiang Kai-shek, ruler of China before Mao, he kept a diary for 57 years. Every day, he wrote his diary. It, and in his diary, there was a, it was incredibly personal, surprisingly personal. And he talked about his relationship with his wife, Maiden, because it wasn't a straightforward relationship. There were many ups and downs, and it was fascinating. And the remaining archives, I love archive research, and I just enjoy discovering, you know, these bits of information that brings revelations. Research has always been part of my writing, and I, I do it because I love it. While you're researching these, these sisters, did you find out anything about any of them that really surprised you? Well, I found a lot of things that surprised me, and the story I just told, and that was entirely new and quite devastating. And uh, then there is uh, Mailing's miscarriage, and Mailing's little sister also miscarried, and which left her childless for all her life. And the reason was she was married to Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang Kai-shek's political career had started with him bumping off a political opponent of Sun Yat-sen. So he had started his career with assassination. And throughout his career, he was pursued by assassins. And one lot of assassins got into their bedroom one night in the 1920s. And, and um, so mailing suffered a miscarriage as a result. And that was new for me. And a lot of that was in Chiang Kai-shek's diaries, which was relatively new addition to the materials about the three sisters. Did you have a favorite sister? <laughs> I actually, I, so I started to write about these three sisters, actually feeling rather indifferent to them. I didn't start with feeling strongly about them. And this book is actually the most distant to me emotionally, because when I wrote about Mao, Mao grew up under Mao, and then the Empress Daojit, so she started with a curiosity because she had such a bad reputation, and yet when I was writing Wild Swans, I discovered that she had banned foot binding you know, the thing that tortured Chinese women, including my grandmother, for a thousand years. And, uh, you know, I, I had started with wanting to find out there was a strong personal urge. And whereas for a long time I resisted writing about the sisters, I had wanted to write about Sun Yat-sen because he was a program setter like Mao and Sashi, and he was a kind of a bridge between them. And the sisters weren't, they weren't policy makers like Mao and Cixi. And then during the research about Sun Yat-sen, I 
realized how relatively uninteresting this man was compared to his wife and her sisters. And then in the writing of the three sisters from all my research and writing and so on, I found perhaps Mailing little sister, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, is somebody with a lot of admirable qualities. Um, she was certainly extravagant, and in the last years of her life, she had 37 servants wow. living in America with all the servants coming from Taiwan. And she loved luxury. She brought where she traveled, even to the White House. She brought her silk sheets. But you know, she was a kind person. She did no one any harm. And her influence on Chiang Kai-shek was a benign one. Chiang Kai-shek was a dictator. He could have been much worse without his wife. And also Mei-Ling was very brave. And there were many stories of her bravery. And in one occasion, her husband was kidnapped. She went to the kidnapper's place and saved her husband and as a result saved China from a devastating civil war just before the Japanese invasion. But I admired her courage. You write quite a lot about, or you have written quite a lot about women's experiences for you. Obviously Wild Swans is about your experience, your mother's experience and your grandmother's experience under, under Mao. Other than obviously, I guess, like the obvious that you are a woman yourself, but like what is it that draws you to women when you're talking about these experiences that are perceived traditionally as masculine, like power struggles and politics? What is it about the female experience that you find so interesting? Given that I've also written a biography of Mao, who was a man, and I spent 12 years of my life with my husband writing this book, Um, I didn't start with thinking that I would just write about women. In fact, as I just said, you know, I I resisted the idea of writing about these three women. But when I was writing about Sun Yat-sen, I'm afraid that I found that this was another man like Mao who was single-mindedly pursuing his political ambition and to the exclusion of uh, everything else. And in the end, I found him deeply uninteresting. I mean, sort of there are interesting bits, but as a character, I Mm. thought I had enough writing about Mao. I mean, who was somebody who was power-hungry, you know, was just driven by power. And then there was Sun Yat-sen. There was no other dimension Mm. to men like that. I find the three sisters together with Empress Dowager Cixi, the subject of my previous book. And they were women in power, in the position of power. But they always have many other dimensions in their lives. They have come somehow richer lives and interests and characters, and they were just more interesting and more appealing to me. I think it's quite interesting you say about the single-mindedness and sort of pursuit of power. I wonder if we can see any parallels with what's happening (laughs) at the moment. (laughs) But um, maybe let's not dwell on that. The book is published on October 17th, and you've got a book tour 
which you are about to start as well. For example, you're going to be at the London Literature Festival on the 19th of October and various other places all around the country. Where can we find out more information about where we can come and, and hear you talk about the book? I have a website and these events are also on the website. So for more information about the book tour and the books and what you're up to at any given point, then check out Jung's website, which is jungchang.net. Jung, all the best with the book, and thank you so, so much for talking to me. Thank you very much. enjoyed it. Hello. You may or may not, and if you're not, you certainly should be, a regular attendee at our live events where we chat to brilliant women about all sorts of everything and there's a lot to be said for having that kind of general chat but there's also a lot to be said for some focus and we have got an event that is going to be a tv special because 2019 has been a pretty cracking year for tv in general but there's been a bumper amount of great stuff created by women in particular and we want to celebrate this by talking to some very exciting and hard-working women in the tv industry when are we going to be doing this? We're going to be doing this on November the 10th, which is a Sunday. And where are we going to be doing this? Well, thanks very much for asking. We're going to be doing this at a brand new, exciting theatre in Soho called The Boulevard, which is beautiful. And we would, of course, love you to be there. So, yeah, check our website, www.standardissuepodcast.com, for more details about this event and all of our forthcoming live events. Hello, Hannah and I. Hello. Hi, Hannah. Oh, there she is are joined by model and activist Naomi Shimada and Refinery29 editor-at-large Sarah Raphael. Hello. Hello. Hi. Sorry, I've got a mouthful of shortbread. <laughs> Naomi is basically bang on standard issue trend. She's got a cup of tea and a biscuit. She's having a lovely time. <laughs> and insisted on grabbing it and making it for myself. <laughs> So, women's, you have combined your talents and outlooks to write Mixed Feelings, Exploring Modern Life and the Internet, One Discussion at a Time, which is a pretty self-explanatory title, really. <laughs> so what made you want to write this and why did you decide to write it together? We met each other in Paris. Naomi works on the front end of the industry. You know, she's public facing and I've always worked on the back end, as we call it, in websites. Never not funny. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the back end. She's on the back oh, end. So. Yeah. <laughs> we have kind of different experiences due to our work and our lives obviously but a lot of shared feelings you know our jobs both bring us into contact with a lot of women all over the world and the more, more we spoke to people about these issues people just have so many stories that they want to share and so many anecdotes and kind of often really deep traumatic experiences as well and we felt it was the right time to have a book that talks about all these issues we didn't necessarily want to offer answers we just wanted to have an open conversation and to kind of let people know that wherever you are in the world if you have an iPhone and you have social media you're probably going to be feeling a number of the emotions that we talk about in the book. Yeah it's a juicy topic everyone has something to say about it as a generation well we fall into millennial bracket but you know the internet is what has shaped our lives in every way whether it's the relationships we have intimate ones our friendships whether that's using apps like tinder or you know using instagram how it's affected our work how we spend our free time how we think about our bodies it's it's the lens that we look at ourselves constantly but that lens and the, our feelings towards them often happen in isolation they're mm -hmm. on our phones in our rooms they happen in private and they're these feelings that make us feel often very alone because we in that moment, it feels like you're the only one it's happening to. It's weird, isn't it? It offers that connectivity to the world and yet can make you feel incredibly isolated. Yeah, it's like yeah. this huge community in this huge universe. 
but like you said, it, it's sometimes the most isolating place in the world. There was a study recently that said, a YouGov study that said, found that millennials are the loneliest generation at the moment, which, you know, they are the, the first generation that got social media, that, you know, it's a social network. It was intended, so they said, to bring people together. And it has in many ways. But, yeah, it, we've ended up as a very, very lonely generation. Yeah, and this, both the scope of our jobs, you know, people look at our lives and think we have it all figured out. Mm -hmm. People think because I have a social media following, it means that, you know, I know how to do everything or like that my life is perfect. And I think we wanted to kind of break apart pedestal culture that social media creates, that how we look up at people instead of looking into their eyes. We are also a part of a generation that sometimes prioritizes online interaction over real ones in real life. So we wanted to strip back and create a space for discussion. Like Sarah says, we don't have the answers. This technology is so new. Nobody has the answers. And to openly look at it and critique it, like we are addicted to this technology because they've made it like this. Mm -hmm. Let's be honest about that from a, like a starting place. So the longer we spend on these apps, the more they can capitalize our time into money. Well, that yeah. leads very nicely onto the fact that you talk about the attention economy. Could you explain a little bit about what that is? So the attention economy is, I guess, still quite new kind of terminology, but exactly tying that into what we just spoke about, how the longer they can hold they, the gods that be, at, uh, <laughs> and the Silicon Valley gods, the longer they hold our attention, the more they can capitalize on it. I think that's what we reference a lot in the book, how, you know, we have to remind ourselves that social media in this format is an app that just increases the effects of capitalism. The more they make us feel like we don't have enough, the more we will buy. The ideas of success and our goal systems that are modeled from social media. Like on Instagram, success seems like it has a formula of what it looks like, for example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's that holiday, it's that outfit, it's that this, it's popping bottles, it's whatever. But it's perfection. Yeah, well, that intense need for perfection in every aspect of our lives. Yeah. Perfect partner, perfect-looking children and matching outfits. Like, it's, it's, it's the Kodak moment on crack. And it makes us feel less than. By the attention economy, we specifically mean that our attention span is gone. We are trying to sell an actual book that people will have to actually read. But so many of us are doing less and less of that because our attention span does not hold anymore. Because everything's so exciting now. <laughs> I think, you know, the word teenager has been around since how long? I think like the 50s is when it first started. Yeah, um, I think it was like late 50s, 60s. Yeah. yeah. And that was when this whole kind of teenage culture began. And now teenagers have so much to do. There's so many options. And it's also tempting. They have like five different apps. They have Fortnite, that game that everyone's obsessed with. They have at their fingertips all these different filters and Snapchats and like streaks and TikTok videos. And there's so much content and so much entertainment that there's kind of no real need necessarily to go and meet up with your friends or to do the slow things like reading that you may have done before. And as well, I find with when I spend any time with teenagers, because I do now because my friend's children are now teenagers. And, <laughs> and your nephew. And my nephew's a teenager. Is actually getting them to concentrate on one thing. Mm -hmm. Like, you're like, we're actually playing a game here or we're watching a film. So why are you also on your iPad and doing this? Mm. Just do one thing at once do because yeah. mm. that's how you do something properly if yeah. by just doing the one thing. And, yeah, and, and the they want to get off it. these things hold our gaze, the more financial gain there is for people who own the apps.
Are you telling me that Facebook, Instagram and Twitter are not charities? This is <laughs> brand new information. Have you seen that um, the former Google design ethicist, his name's Tristan Harris, and he's quoted a lot in the long reads about social media and the design. And he talks about how social media apps are designed using persuasive psychology, mm-hmm. which is gambling psychology, basically. So it's like a slot machine. So when you open Instagram or any social media app, you pull the content down and he compares it to pulling down the lever in a slot machine. And then you get some content and either that content will make you happy like it's a picture of your friend looking happy and it's nice or a dog which is my favorite thing to look at on the internet love them or you get something that makes you feel bad about yourself so you know people have compared it to Pavlov's dogs in terms of like it's a a varied reward system and you don't know what you're going to get but that's what makes it so addictive because you keep going back wondering whether you're going to get a good thing if it's a bad thing then the next time you might get a good thing and it's just this constant yeah uh, feedback loop is it the same odds as gambling in that you might feel like you're on a winning streak, but sooner or later you're just going to end up homeless in a ditch? <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, maybe, maybe more feedback from the trenches. Yeah, <laughs> maybe the it space. is. You go on Twitter, you see three positive tweets and you leave. Yeah. It's just, you, I've, I've done well. So teenagers and the attention economy is really interesting. So they are all obsessed with this thing called Snapchat streaks. Have you heard of that? that I've, I've, heard of snap, I've heard of Snapchat. Is this naked Snapchat? That's what streaks means to me. Are they going on cricket pitches with Snapchat? Um, so streaks is when you have like a number of friends, basically, who you send streaks to. So a streak is any piece of content, but it's a, it's a, it's a picture. You might have like 130 people who you're in touch with every day and you send them a picture every day. But you have to send them a picture within 24 hours and they have to send you one back. Otherwise, your streak disappears. Or like chain mail. Yeah, almost. Where's, where's Roy? This yeah. is a record breaker special. <laughs> Teenagers, like they're obsessed with sending these streaks. And the idea of losing the run of streaks that they have with their friends is devastating. So when they go on holiday, for instance, they will employ their cousin or their friend to keep up their streaks because losing it is a big deal. If you've had a Snapchat streak with someone for 138 days, which it will register and tell you how many days you've been, then you get a little cup and then you get something else and then it gives you these emoji rewards. And if you lose that, it has an impact on how they see their friendship with that person. But the pictures they're sending them is like a picture of a wall because they have so many people to send content to. They'll take a picture of a white wall or a door and send it to 136 people. And then that person they send it to will take another picture of adore send it back to them and that's the communication but it's considered a friendship is this why teenage pregnancies are down (laughs) yeah Yeah. literally watching pedro yeah wow i don't think we have to worry about our teenagers in certain ways anymore but in a lot of other ways yeah that sounds pretty scary yeah and i think i think drinking's down i think drug taking's down like sex sex is down all these things are down and i think it's because people are generally in their rooms creating content. I would imagine some people would think that's a good thing, but I find that quite depressing, yeah, really. really sad. I had a great time taking, taking drugs and having sex as a yeah. teenager. <laughs> Hannah's content, just pictures of bike sheds. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it gives you social skills because you're out in the world and you have exper- exactly. experiences. But I was came across this new app called TikTok. Well, it's not actually that new, but it was Apple's most downloaded app in Q1. I don't like talking in Q1, but people do. I don't know of what that means. 2019, the first quarter oh, the first of the year. <laughs> yeah. I know what that means. And on TikTok, teenagers are posting these videos, which is hashtag cringe content. And it's like hashtag embrace the cringe, hashtag I'm cringe, hashtag awkward, hashtag I'm so awkward. And the content is them deliberately being awkward teenagers. So they'll stand in their bedroom sort of like doing an awkward dance move or lip syncing to like a Rihanna song with a soft toy or something. And I like that content because it's weird, but at least it's not trying to be perfect it's like embracing 
the excruciating experience of being a teenager. The only TikTok I've seen is the cat dancing to Mr. Sandman, and so I'm here for it. (laughs) But that's the same as Helen Thorne today, who is one of the scummy mummies, posted a picture of her in her... Swimming costume. Uh, swimming costume, dancing on the beach with her not especially shaved bits and pieces <laughs> and her not especially thin waist, which she won't mind me saying. Yeah. That's, and that's where social media is a force for good. Everyone should see Helen's jiggly bits. Yeah, absolutely. And she's putting it out there. Yeah. yeah. And there's so many positive communities that have emerged from social media, which don't really actually get enough press like if you're on instagram and you're part of these communities you know about them but the headlines aren't about like what amazing like supportive mental health communities there are online it's about the massive issue of self-harm among teenagers which is there but there is also a positive angle well one of the questions i wanted to ask you guys was do you think the positives balance out the negatives i mean this is a question once again we don't have an actual answer for and can differ From hour to hour, day to day, you know, depending on how we engage with it or especially for me, because so much of my work life seeds through it, you know, as a model. Now your portfolio is your Instagram page. It's not just models. It's so many people in their professional, especially Mm -hmm. creative fields. You know, your social media profile is your CV. Sometimes I feel like I don't want to engage with it, but I kind of have to for work. Yeah. Or like even we're we're putting out a book. This is not the time to come off social media, ironically, even though we're writing a book about (laughs) the benefits of sometimes coming off social media. You know, it's like... What do you say when you start writing a book about social media was the time that you both sort of ended up taking yourself off it Mm. to give you space to write a book about it? Yeah, because you start analysing how you behave on there, how everyone else behaves on there. And so in each chapter, we talk about a theme and then in my part of the chapter I try to identify something that I do when I'm on social media that makes me feel bad makes me feel a bit sick in each topic like from work to leisure to beauty to communities and relationships I do something in all of those categories of life on social media that's just a bit dark and a bit weird and it makes me feel awful and you can't really share it because it's embarrassing like for instance in the relationships chapter I talk about digital paranoia in relationships Mm. as in when you meet a new person and you look them up or even when you're in a long-term relationship and you look up their exes or who they're in touch with at the moment, there's all this information available that never used to be. And people can make such tiny actions and it has a huge impact on your day. And it's hard to describe why it has a huge impact on your day because it sounds like nothing. It's like, well, that person's just liked a photo. But to so many people, yeah, if it's a big your thing. current partner has liked a photo of a girl in a bikini on the beach, even though, like, you know, Sarah questions her. in her chapter, what is fidelity and infidelity in the digital age, for example? But then seeing an action like that is something you would never have seen in the past. Yeah. yeah. You know, how that could throw off her day, for example, and then you're just sat there thinking about it at work all day long, being like, how many other bikini girls does he like? And what does this mean in our relationship? And Are they in his like office spiraling. right now? Yeah. yeah. And then you just turn up in a bikini to his office <laughs> and your whole day is completely changed. I think it's that thing of if you start looking for something about someone, you're never going to come away from that feeling like, oh, well, that is all just fine. You're going to find something because you're, yeah. you're looking for something. For holes, you'll find but now them. we're in this world where you, you can sometimes hardly help looking for it because it's there. It's, it's so tempting. And there's this, so I looked into this psychiatrist called Dr. Eric Byrne, who wrote this book, Games People Play, which was apparently very popular in the 60s. And it was all about people playing games in relationships and how sometimes you play a game in relationship because you want to feel something negative. It's not always that you play a game because you want to win. Sometimes you want to feel guilt or pain or anger, and that's just the human 
urge to feel something dark sometimes and social media I find that's how I behave on social media I will go looking for something knowing full well that it will make me feel bad but I do it anyway because I feel compelled to that's like when um, people do that thing where they search for themselves. Yeah, um, Ed Balls did that once, I think. Yeah, I know, but I mean, we, we've interviewed lots of people who, and we know people who are, are famous who sometimes just can't help themselves just putting their own name into Twitter and then just horrifying themselves at what they've found. Mm, people, comments people have said about Com- them. Yeah, comments that people have made about them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I do remember, well, when Ed Balls was searching for himself on Twitter, but he accidentally tweeted his own name. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> it's so and then we have Ed Balls Day, and it's basically it's another bank holiday. Yeah. Yeah. It should be, just all of us doing yeah. Gangnam yeah. Style in yeah. tribute to Ed Balls. <laughs> How do we start to have a healthy relationship with the online world? So I've made a number of changes, personally, including muting and unfollowing a lot of people that I was following. When you actually look at the people you're following on your Instagram list, you're like, you don't even remember ever following them or why. Because it becomes subliminal. You just you look at their images without registering them, really, because you scroll past so so fast. I have a set of criteria now, like, do, have I met that person did I like that person when I met them? If I haven't met them, do I like them still? Mm-hmm. And actually asking that question rather than just mindlessly following people. And then I've also stopped taking selfies, which sounds like the most millennial thing to say. But the average millennial will take 25,000 selfies in their lifetime. Wow. I haven't taken that many because I don't. I hate how I look in selfies. But then it's like the addiction. It's like the gambling. You pull it down and you get content. You flick up your camera on your iPhone and it's like an instinct you start taking a photo of yourself and you see people do that all the time like and that's a new behavior for this generation but they made me feel really bad so I was just like like, no one's forcing me to do that like taking selfies is not a requirement of being a young woman it's not Mm -hmm. a requirement of working in the media if it makes you feel good then great like that's amazing for you but if it doesn't I think just recognizing that all these behaviors we have we have control over them it's easy to forget because that's the addiction side you forget you have control in it Naomi? I mean, for me, definitely taking some breaks from it. You mm-hmm. know, having to take the break for the book really just reminded me how often I actually want to be doing that. I think sometimes, like we said, social media can just feel like a room of everyone shouting at each other. And I think it's important to kind of differentiate for ourselves sometimes how we feel about something. Like, is this an idea that's being dictated to me or is is this how I actually feel about mm-hmm. something and I think in this day and age that becomes harder and harder to do that's definitely what the space and time off provided me with that now seems just so instrumental to to everything I do to be able to just be like okay I'm very much my own person we can't all have the same goals and values and I'm not going to model what happiness and success looks like on what it looks like for other people. That's really interesting, I think, because to me, one of the things that drives me most mad, uh, the social media I use most is Twitter, mm-hmm. is groupthink, which exists on Twitter to such a degree that, you know, I see people getting corrected for the slightest misdemeanor. Yeah, yeah and I want like, social media to be a place where people are allowed to be human and allowed to make mistakes. Exactly that, yeah. Exactly that. Where can we find out more about you <laughs> and the book and Nomi's incredible dancing, which unfortunately the, the listeners can't see? Uh, but where I just can count we... myself, but that was just a... <laughs> never, never stop. Always go with that. Where can we find you on, you know, social media? Uh, yeah, social media. You can media. find me on Instagram at, at Naomi Shimada. Twitter's more like, you know, or I discuss all the secret things inside my brain. So if you actually want to see that version, it's just my full name, Naomi Shimada, on Twitter. I'm at Sarah underscore Raphael. 
There's so many namesakes on Instagram. I think I registered about four different ones, but that was the one I ended up with. That's the one to find you on when you want to be found. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for coming in to chat to us about this. Thank, Thank you, you for having so us. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for letting me eat your biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm joined by Carrie Dunn, author of lots and lots and lots of books, but now the new book, Pride of the Lionesses. Carrie, hello! Hello! Yes, my book is out, I'm so excited! It's literally out. I'm at her at the launch. The actual launch. We are here at the actual launch. My book is out in a shop. People are buying it. It is a very fun evening. And I mean, as I said, you've got a squillion book. So this is your tenth. You think? I think it's the tenth. Yes. So, but this is kind of the sequel to one I did three years ago. So. The one I wrote in 2016 was after the 2015 Women's World Cup and followed the season in women's football after that. And this one follows the season before the 2019 Women's World Cup, so it kind of is a nice bookend. So I have to ask, first of all, you've been talking about this a bit tonight, the Women's World Cup was much, much, much hyped in terms of, A, the England team, what would happen with them at the World Cup, Unfortunately, not not what we not what we'd hoped, but also in terms of what it would do for women's football. So, do you think it has been this like great thing for women's football that we were sort of hoping it would be, or do you think it was a bit of a damp squib? I don't think any tournament in the history of football could live up to the hype that was put on this year's Women's World Cup, because particularly in England, there was so much expectation on the Lionesses. There was this thought that they would win the tournament. I mean. If you'd asked me kind of 18 months ago, people did ask me 18 months ago, and I thought, yeah, they had a chance in 2019. But as things transpired, I mean, the performances in the group stages from England were not what I would have hoped from a team that was going to win a tournament. I think probably fourth place was fair. But, yeah, now we're kind of looking at kind of the impact and I've talked about this this evening, as you, as you mentioned, this idea that the Lionesses have been inspiring a generation And that's very difficult to measure. It's difficult to quantify. And also, we're not going to know whether this part of generation until this generation has grown up, really. So we're kind of in for the long haul with women's football. Yes, these big showpiece occasions might go some way to encouraging people to watch the sport or perhaps take it up. But we're not going to know whether it's a long-term benefit until we're looking a couple of decades down the line. I suppose one of the things we'll be looking at and one of the things that's been in the press like just constantly over the last few weeks, and again, we, we've talked about this tonight as well, is the attendance at matches. So we've talked about how it's nice to go to big stadia, you were saying, which must be the plural of stadium, which it never occurred to me before, Carrie. <laughs> and also, it's easy to go to a stadium of your local team and I think you've got to be realistic about it. Obviously, you can't justify those spaces if you've got less than 2,000 people going to a match. But, but Phil Neville said in the last week that he thought the club should be filling out their, those little stadiums first. What do you think about that? I mean, it's not often that I say I think he's absolutely right, but I think he's absolutely right. I mean, I really think that the women's game needs to prove that it can consistently attract an audience. And I think there has been kind of a little tendency, which I think is great, um, when the men's clubs open up the big stadium. Um, to let the women play there. And it is lovely to go along and get kind of 30, 40,000 people. Yes, fantastic. 
They're not coming back the next week when you're back at the Little League. You're not building up a consistent fan base, and that is one of the key things that women's football in this country needs to sort out. We need that consistency because that is all that is going to ensure future generations of fans coming along and financial stability in, in, in the current day. So, yeah, I think focus on kind of regularly attracting 2,000. Yes, it's lovely to get 40,000 because it's a nice day out, but if you can get 2,000 week in, week out, that's your starting point, and then you can start thinking about maybe getting to that big stadium more often. I mean, we've seen a bit of progress, haven't we? We've seen, for example, you know, these big sort of showcase matches we're talking about, like Chelsea Spurs, who else? Like Man City, Man United, West Ham. So, you know, these, these big matches. But then we've seen, like, little clubs, like Bristol, I think their first match, they got about 3,000, 4,000. I think that's actually, in some ways, really more encouraging than, than the big London clubs or Manchester clubs getting tens of thousands in because you could probably you know 4,000 whatever in Ashton Ashton Gate is pretty decent and you've got more chance of more more percentage of them coming back again as well so yeah I think kind of hats off to them really they've been kind of very overlooked but I think that's a really significant achievement and not massively promoted like those other games as well going back to Phil Neville Interesting times within the England women's football team. They're playing tonight, as we discussed this. There's a friendly against Portugal tonight. I don't know what the score is. But up until this point, they've failed to win their last five matches. Now, this is not what we're sort of expecting of the England women's team. It's not what we would want to see from them. Do we need to talk about Phil? Yeah. I mean, the last time England had a run this bad, Hope Powell lost her job. So, you know, then I think there needs to be questions asked. And I think, also interestingly, Phil Neville's boxed himself into a little bit of a corner. He threw such a hissy fit about the third, fourth place playoff during the World Cup, saying it was a meaningless match, it's not worth anything, he doesn't really care about outrageous. it. Which was outrageous say, yeah, in, yeah. in its own right. Mm. But if you said that, OK, then you're saying that you should be winning friendlies, you know... He can't say that these friendlies don't mean anything. He can't be expecting people to turn up to these matches at Wembley, for example, against Germany next month. Oh, it's a friendly. I'll put out any old side and it doesn't matter if we lose. Sorry, his expectations are higher than that now. And he's helped hype that. I think he'll probably have a longer rope than someone like Hope Powell did because, obviously, he brings a certain amount of media attention himself and... I think his presence has gone some way to attracting a lot of journalists and a lot of fans to women's football, particularly the England team. But yeah, I don't think that patience is going to last forever. If this run continues, I think there will be more questions being asked than they should be asked. They would be of a men's team manager. If not, Phil, who would you like to see as the next England women's manager? There are so many women coaches I would love to see in post, but I can't see any of them wanting to take the job because I just think it's just so much of a stress. There's so much work in the public eye. They wouldn't have so much control over it as they do at the club level. So someone like Laura Harvey over in the US at the moment, someone like Emma Hayes, Emma Hayes. Who, everyone you know, wants everyone Hayes. wants Emma Hayes. Yeah. 
So, you know, I think Casey Stoney was certainly kind of in line for kind of stepping up at some point before she got the Man United job. So I think that was kind of the succession planning. So it's a horrible job to have, I think. I think there's so much expectation, as we've said. Um, There's so much kind of struggle for media attention and for money. I mean, Hope Powell did that thankless task for the best part of 20 years, and she kind of restructured the whole of women's football in England, the international side, senior to junior, and she got so little thanks for it. Obviously, it's a bit different with Phil Neville now. There's plenty more backroom staff, and obviously his name carries some weight. But, yeah, any of the top-name women's coaches that I'd like to see coaching the England side, you wouldn't have as much day-to-day control over it as you would for the club side, so I'm not sure they'd be that attracted to it. Carrie, your new book, The Pride of the Lionesses, is out now. This very second, in a bookshop near you or an online retailer near you, now. And where can we follow you on the social medias? Oh, on the Twitters, at Carrie Sparkle. But I'm also on the gram now. I don't really understand it, but follow me on there and explain it to me. It's at Carrie Sparkle 123. Carrie, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Hannah here, just to ask whether or not you already subscribe to us. Yes. Yeah, well done, Mickey. Do you know what the benefit is? I don't know why I said it like tubs. (laughs) Yes. One of the best reasons to subscribe is that you don't miss out on anything. And we have got some great things coming up soon. Next week, I will be talking to Heidi Allen, one-time Conservative MP, now Lib Dem MP, about Brexit, amongst other things. I'm going to be talking to comedian Sophie Duca about being one of the first women of colour to be nominated for the... Edinburgh Comedy Awards and I have also been on the phone with Green and Women Everywhere which is a project to gather first-hand accounts from women who were at Green and Common all of which are very interesting so if you want to make sure you don't miss out on any of those interviews plus the many many that both Mick and Jen have planned press subscribe on that place that you listen to your podcasts I thank you access to the precious things Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what the fuck's all this about? Well, like I said last week, I or it wasn't last week, it was whenever we went off dystopia. We are living in a dystopia, but who knows, a couple of weeks we might be living in a disaster film. Plus, Jen doesn't like violence, so we were getting nowhere fast with dystopia. So I thought we could stop and watch some big budget stuff you've you've stopped my transformation into a teenage boy yeah (laughs) well maybe not actually okay maybe not because a lot of this is uh, kind of falls into the same category doesn't it i'm not sure there'll be much arnie but in the same way there was a lot of arnie in dystopia i think you're going to find a lot of will smith in this sort of stuff um (laughs) i'm not willing to do an impression of will smith (laughs) (laughs) and also where we saw a lot of Paul Verhoeven we will see a lot of uh, Roland Emmerich I would imagine in this because it's yes. yeah a certain sort of uh, film so I thought we'd have a look at disaster plus I quite like disaster films I watched a lot of them when I was little because the heyday of the disaster film was the 1970s went out of fashion a bit after the 1970s came back there was a massive 90s revival of it I'm sorry I'm distracted because Jen just undid her trousers my um my belly button piercing is Rubbing on my waistband. Okay. Any excuse. But September the 11th kind of put the end to disaster films temporarily. 
Well, maybe not temporarily. It's been around 20 years. They've never been quite revived, but I would imagine there will be a revival of them soon. Where are we starting? Well, I thought we might start with the best one. We were going to start with the Poseidon Adventure. It's actually harder to track down than I thought it might be. Yeah, you need to work on that time machine so we can go back to a Sunday afternoon in 1974. Yeah, so what I'm going to, have to do is buy it on some on DVD or something. And Outrageous. Then, and we can all go to someone's house and watch it. So we started with the other great 70s disaster film, probably, like I say, the best one, The Towering Inferno, 1974. I mean, this was massive. And it's also a very good example of what a disaster film is. Massively expensive. In fact, this was the first film that was a joint venture between two studios. Mm -hmm. And why was that? There's a story there, Hannah. You tell me. The story there is that after the Poseidon adventure, which was a huge success for, I think it was Warner Brothers, they bought, Warner Brothers bought the rights to a book called The Tower. Yeah. And... Um, Fox bought the rights to a book called The Glass, Glass Inferno, Inferno. Yeah, and they were going to go up against each other which would have pretty much cancelled each other out Oh, but like instead, a Volcano Dante's Peak Exactly, exactly, or an Armageddon and, um, what's the other Deep one? Impact. Deep Impact Guys, um, <laughs> guys. Uh, so yeah, they decided instead of going head to head they would collaborate and make this monster Jen, you watched it? I did watch it, yeah. Had you seen it before? I had never seen it before, no. Mick? I had seen it before, but I watched it again. All 12 hours of it. Yes, very, very long. It's a long one. It is a slow burn. Mm. (laughs) Hey. Yeah, I liked it. I thought it was good. Yeah, I mean, it's indisputably, I think, probably one of the best ones. It has an absolutely crazy cast. Oh, my God, the cast is just... Insanely... I mean, there's the famous story about who got the top billing on this. I don't know if you've ever heard this, um, because obviously it stars Steve McQueen and Paul Newman. Can you imagine if it also starred Vicky McClure and uh, Martin Comston and Adrian Dunbar? Like, is that his name? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Just all of those amazing eyeballs. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So Steve McQueen is not in this film per minute as much as Paul Newman Here's leading Paul Newman to think that he was probably the lead actor. Steve McQueen was under the impression he was the lead actor. There was much to and fro in who was going to get lead billing. If you ever see an original poster for The Tower Inferno, you'll see one is on the left, one is on the right. The one on the left, which makes you... That's uh, where your eye goes which to. Which your eye goes to first, which makes you think is the lead guy, is actually lower than the one on the right. Mm, the one on the right is higher sneaky, up, which is closer sneaky. to the top, suggesting it's the lead. Clever, eh? But great cast otherwise. William Holden, Faye Dunaway, and we could talk for a few hours about how fucking beautiful I was going to say. Is. Oh my god, must be awful looking like that. What it's an affliction! Just, just it's even her limbs. She's got beautiful limbs. Yeah. she's incredible. Ridiculous. Genuinely, I I don't know. I think I mean I think she's pretty hot anyway. But I think she really excels herself in this. She, yeah, she's just stunningly. Yeah. yeah. Also, Fred Astaire just knocking around. I'm just watching it going, when's he going to dance? When's he going to dance? Ah, there he is. <laughs> a little dance. And you of course. It's Fred Astaire. No, I yeah. didn't. Okay. Uh, Richard Chamberlain. Evil. Evil Richard Chamberlain. Two Roberts. Robert Vaughan and Robert Wagner. Lex Luthor's in it. Dabney Coleman. OJ Simpson. 
Yeah, he's in it as well. O.J. Simpson. I thought he was, he was better than I thought he was going to be, to be honest. I don't think I've ever seen him act before. Well, I mean, he was the head of we security, seen... so that's a, an odd choice, but there you have you it. You've never seen the Naked Gun films? No, mate. Oh, my God. It's not for me. Oh, it's... Well, you're missing out, and you're going to be upset when we get to Airplane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's not for you. Disaster films quite often work on a superlative. You know, I think this basically comes from Titanic originally. You know, the irony is the biggest unsinkable boat sank. So it's always the biggest, the fastest, the longest, the whatever. And in this case, it's the tallest. The tallest building ever made, 138 stories. It's going to be a disaster, isn't it? And it, that is said a lot. In fact, many areas of this feel like it's a film made post-September the 11th. A, with the incredible respect it shows firemen throughout. Mm. It's dedicated to firemen. Yeah, and it's dedicated to firemen. And secondly... Sorry, firefighters, we should say, although they are all men in this. Yeah, and secondly, in the the amount of times that firefighters in it give their opinion on how likely a disaster is Uh, in a major building. Bit of choice dialogue. Is it bad? It's a fire. All fires are bad. (laughs) Can I tell you my favourite bit? Yeah. While on the subject of firemen. When they are in the lift shaft and it's sort of stopped and there's like four firemen in it and they're like, we're going to have to basically abseil down. Yeah. And then something like falls down. It's like one of their... um, And he's like, oh... It's, that's one of our men who's just fallen down the shaft like on fire, basically. And the guy goes, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I watched it twice. <laughs> it was so... <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> so, yeah, what's happened here is William Holden, who's the guy who's built the tower, it's been designed by an architect who's played by Paul Newman. William Holden has tried to do this on the cheap with his... Weasley son-in-law, who's played by Richard Chamberlain. Evil, evil He's a prick, isn't he? Yes. And Pick almost immediately, some some sparks have come out of an electrical unit into a bin of tissues, almost, <laughs> that have been left dangerously close. Which is why you shouldn't wank at work. And not just the only reason you shouldn't wank at work. And a fire starts, and it's fucking chaos. It's a fire. Disaster. All fires are bad. Disaster ensues. People trapped above it have to attempt to get down. They can't. There is a point in which you're like, how bad were the builders that did this? They were like the builders from 40 Towers because they can't open a fire door and it turns out there's like a wheelbarrow <laughs> stuck in concrete the other side of it, which did oh. actually make me Yeah, I just got yeah. bored of that. It's it just reminded that, me yeah. of the time that um, some people over the road from my parents got some cowboy builders to do them a new driveway and uh, they hired a digger. And they were digging through. the digger in the... Yeah, they were digging up the old driveway. And they went through the driveway and they hit a gas main and they broke it. And just like, honestly, like a funnel of fire came out <gasps> into the street. And I was like, what the fuck is that? And I was like, I called for my dad because he has actually worked in construction his whole life. And I thought he's going to know what to do here. And uh, my dad came downstairs and... The, the guys started, like, digging to throw soil. And my dad was like, do not fucking do that. Do not do that. If you do that, it's going to send the fire up the pipe. It's going to come out somewhere else. And they went, oh. And then they just got in their van and they drove off. <laughs> oh, fuck. Yeah. And then the fire brigade had to come and uh, sort it out. And the whole street was closed for about, oh, I'd say about six, seven hours. 
Um, so I think they were the people who built the Tower and Inferno just, you know, for... When that happened, were your neighbours hosting the Big Deal Society affair? They were, they were. <laughs> now, obviously, we can see now, I, I, I kept thinking, what category should we put this in? And I thought, because there's so much stuff that just sort of turns up time and time and time again, that I might make us some bingo cards so we could play bingo on the things that turn up in disaster films. And uh, we could cross them off and the winner could... Every week could pick what we watch next week. Mm. Okay. By the winner, whoever crosses the most in a particular week. Right. Now, these, these bingo cards that I found on the internet um, that I had to fill in, they have 16 on them. I filled in 12. You know, you're welcome to add the other for yourself as time goes on. So, which one would you like? Thank you. I've gone for the middle one. Okay. So yes, there's, there's oh, already already got some classics on my. <laughs> there's it. there's some things on here. We won't be able to start with this one retrospectively, uh, I don't think, or maybe we can. But just bear in mind, it's going to be easier for you to think of the four to go in the bottom than it is for me, considering I've already thought of thirty six okay. already. Look at this caveats already. Caveats. What, what are some of the things you've got on yours, Mick? Um, Pet survives carnage. Tick. Um, I have got farewell major landmark. <laughs> Tick. I've got mid-disaster punch-up. <laughs> Tick. I have got bridge collapse. No. No, there's some collapses. Women and children first. Tick. Um, hang on, haven't we already seen this guy in a disaster film, which is going to be a retrospective one, yeah. which is fair enough. Pre-disaster shag. Bingo. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I have to find my son, which um, isn't on the bingo card, but it's just something I need to do later. <laughs> on the... Um... <laughs> On the point about the pre-disaster shag, um, they obviously meet an untimely demise. Yeah. The man runs through the fire. He's seen it done before. It's, There's two pre-disaster yeah. shags. Oh, okay. I missed one of those. Anyway, so this one, I was thinking as he ran through the fire and instantly, t- I was thinking, this is a very bad era. Is that Robert Wagner? Yeah, Robert, Robert Wagner. Yeah. Very bad era for this because there is a lot of man-made material. And chest hair. Yeah, yeah. in yeah. that room. You yeah. are fucked You are going to go up, aren't you? Yeah. yeah, amount of polyester. What have you got on your list, Jen? Uh, tunnel only an idiot would try to go through. I'm going to say yes, Tick. I think the lift, I think the no, big long no, no, drop. No, no. Oh, I know, come I mean, on. I definitely tunnel that's going to have a traffic jam at oh, the bottom. Yeah, on. yeah, that's going to happen with many, many yeah. films. So many helicopters, Tick. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. got that. An event that is too important to cancel. Tick. Tick. Provably bad science. I'm pretty sure there must have been some bad science no, in there somewhere. No, you know, from, I mean, in this example, I can say yes, but from now on, if you want to come in with your bingo card and prove something, you're going to have to actually Specifics. specifically prove it, it was. Don't use the lifts for fuck's sake. <laughs> Tick. Tick. Can you smell burning? Oh, yes, I really can. Cool ish cameo. Is OJ Simpson a cameo? Is Fred Astaire is, is a cameo? Fred Astaire is definitely a cameo. Yeah. Also, he did his own stunts, which is why he looks genuinely terrified when it all gets flooded. Yeah, I think Fred Astaire might actually be an actually cool cameo, whereas what I'm looking for is a ghoulish cameo. Right, okay. Tomato, tomato there. Tomato, tomato face from Jen. I've got... Is that all you've got on your list? Well, I didn't Brexit read all my analogy now. here, and I'm sure there is a Brexit analogy in there, but I, I can't say I, I thought of one immediately. Okay. I've I, got, I've got. Oh, I should have had that one. I can find a Brexit analogy in anything. I've got old person sacrifice. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Thing. This is Miller. Thing that you can't do, meaning you would definitely die in this film. I'm not sure I'd have got down that 
hanging. I don't have a lot of upper body strength. You know when, oh, when, when they were going down the stairwell? Oh, Mrs. Miller. No yeah, one yeah. would have fucking got down that. That was insane. Well, I would have got down it, but I, I would have been hanging on Paul Newman's back. I, I, was like, died too. I was like, Mrs. Miller is, she is dead. She is gone. They are going to sacrifice her right now. She's an old lady who gives a fuck. <laughs> She's gone. Uh, if only we hadn't bought substandard kit. That, yeah, that works tick. in this one. I think tick. fancy do, as in hairdo, gone bad. Okay, definitely got a few of those. None of them caught fire, which was a surprise. Yeah. Cassandra ignored. Yeah, it was all, all going so well until I sprained my ankle. That's <laughs> that. We haven't got that. Um, or a shame star, or a dot brace position. So I haven't actually gone very well on my form. But um, I made um, I made one note on the Tyrant Inferno. Um, and that was there isn't a plan that can't be royally fucked up by the addition of people yeah. <laughs> they have so many great ideas and then people rush a helicopter people rush a lift it's yeah. like people calm the fuck down I did wonder you know in the end the final action that they take to sort of, couldn't they just have done that a bit earlier you know well I think that was that was supposed to be the last resort wasn't okay. it okay it was quite a lot it of them did, did die at that point it did feel a bit like okay um, what we'll do here is make this building even less structurally robust. Yeah. I mean, I'd imagine they had to pull that building down afterwards. I mean, it was going to go, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. I think that's why it was the last resort, though. To So, in case you haven't seen the Tower in Inferno, they blow up the everything. water towers and <laughs> everything. everything to drench the fires below. And all of the men, because, you know, women and children first, all of the men left strapped to various bits of the party do you think you could have gone across in that funny little fuck off that funny little sort of pulley system they had with the what i liked about this it's like film a cable was, car it was like, like the world's most dangerous cable car what made me laugh about this was how much they showed normally in things like this they're like oh sling a rope over it's fine this they were like right let's show them wrapping it around the column and then we'll do, do a special knot here and then we're up under this thing and yeah, much more detail than they put into building the actual oh, fucking tower. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> also, like Robert Vaughan, I think that death is spaffed. He just suddenly go he, like he's been like quite heroic. Yeah, he's been doing stuff. He's been helping out, even though he's a sort of slightly seedy businessman. And all of a sudden, Richard Chamberlain's like, "Fuck you, prick!" And off he, he's gone. Yeah, no, he doesn't even get a scream. He doesn't even get a Wilhelm scream. No, it's very sad that they killed off ultimately the uh, kindly Hispanic waiter. Barman, Carlos, guy. yeah, that, Carlos. that, and in such a sort of rubbish way. What What I found strange about it was when I watched it again. I mean, and I realised it was nineteen seventy four, so I probably watched it in the eighties, the late seventies or the eighties, whenever it was on the telly. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I mean, I was definitely a kid. Was it look really old then? And it wasn't. It was actually relatively I, contemporary. I thought then. the effects were pretty good. Actually, I thought yeah. they, they stood up quite well. I think it does stand up. It's got that sort of expensive swagger. But mm. I, that's the problem with CGI. Now it's better. You can do amazing stuff with it. But yeah. now when you watch like with a lot of the dystopias, yeah. you were like, oh, what's happening? Like Arnie on Mars, like with yeah. his eyes popping out. You're like, oh. how do they do it then? Because you know the thing about, um, you know, Gone with the Wind, the big fire thing in that they actually set fire to the studio because they were like moving to a new studio or whatever. So they actually did it which is why it looks so good. Yeah, yeah, they built 57 sets and burned them all down. Yeah. Mm. There you go. It's like the Brexit analogy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Boom, cross it off. Okay, so, um, I don't know, how many people, who gets to pick what we do next? How many did you cross off your list? Um, I don't. One, two, 
Can I ask for a slight definition of ironic death? Um, Well... I don't think there was one. I don't think there was one, was there? I'm sorry, I don't think there was one. No. I mean, there there was a bad guy death because Richard Chamberlain died, obviously. Um, But he didn't, like, slip on his own ego or anything. Right, okay. I reckon I've got five... Although there was a little bit of uh, dispute over the cool-ish cameo, so possibly four. I've got six. I think I've got six. Oh, I've got pre-disaster shag. Pet survives carnage. Technically, you've got two pre-disaster shags, so maybe that. Mm. There you go. You win. Yes. Um, Okay. So actually, I'm going to argue that was a mid-disaster shag. Which one? The one that Robert Wagner Wagner had. Yeah, but they weren't aware of the disaster. No, that's a good point. Well, I always said I wanted to die in bed. That was that one, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She just like, And then she just runs around screaming. Which, I mean, in fairness, I'd probably do if everything was on fire yeah, too. Yeah, you'd take that back, didn't you, love? Yeah. I would like to watch Airport. Airport? Yeah, purely yeah. because yeah. then I want to watch Airplane. Yeah. Isn't that a documentary with Jeremy? That's the one. No, not that one. It's a Burt Lancaster movie. Okay. About... Um, an aeroplane disaster. <laughs> right. It's set in an airport, Jen. Okay. Okay, well, I'll see if I can track us down a copy of that. But, I mean, it's purely because I really want to watch Airplane. Yeah. Which I own and know nearly off by heart. So I'm very excited. Standard issue for all women.